Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, the podcast about rebels and rabble and revolutionaries and some other words that start with R. I don't know, I feel like I should have one more. Sophie, Jamie, help me out. Race cars. Race cars. I they said race cards and that wouldn't have been nearly as No, as no, good. no, no, no. <laughs> it was the Zoom connection. I said race cars. Loud and clear, okay. I swear. Okay, well... On we go. Okay, really started the started the episode. I don't know. On a bummer, I wasn't intending. I was just race. I was just talking about. I was just thinking about Lightning McQueen. Jamie, Jamie, Jamie got me a Lightning McQueen waffle maker for. Uh, Whoa! I forget it was some holiday or some birthday, like two years ago. It's phenomenal. I mean, is it just a regular waffle iron, or is it a waffle maker? But you, it like does the imprint of Lightning McQueen. Yeah, cool. It's yeah. not just any waffle maker. Yeah, it's you can get an Owen Wilson voiced car, mm-hmm. uh, a corporate car voiced by Owen Wilson. Um, and I celebrate that for some reason. I do like the movie Cars and Cars Three. Cars Two, not as much. And that's my that's my word on the matter. And that's why I said race cars. Anyways. <laughs> This is your show, Mark. <laughs> Am I supposed to save it? I'm t- take you out of this hole. I'm your host, Mark. Where Margaret do you Kildare, stand on race on cars? Lightning McQueen. Okay, here's where I admit I have no idea who that is. <gasps> I have no idea. Is it a NASCAR okay. thing or is it a movie thing? This is where I do feel it's. It's. I constantly have to tell Robert what basic pop culture literacy is like I, the time I had to tell him who Ariana Grande was. Yeah. Um, Lightning McQueen, you know, I would actually be curious what your take on the Cars franchise is. Okay. Um, you know, it's 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 hit or miss movie to movie. Okay. Uh, but but at times I would say it could be a rollicking good time to quote every review I've ever read. Okay. I'd probably like it. Oh He's yeah. A okay. Smiling. You know, I've seen that. he's on oh, a no, lot I haven't, of children's I've seen that shoes. Picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 
I live under a rock and I, I, I try to smile and nod through a lot of pop culture conversations, even though I really like pop music. Like I listen to more pop music than any other style of music. Um, but I only listen to very specific pop music, so I still completely don't know certain people are. Listeners, who... <laughs> listeners, listeners. I had the great, great, great joy <laughs> last week of telling Margaret who Harry Styles is. And oh, my God, it was the time of my life. I was like, listen to this song. Listen to this song. Listen to this song. And I like yeah. it. It's good music. Why, yes. Yes, it is. Cheers. I had to tell a lot of people I worked with recently who Dua Lipa was. Margaret does the, not know I, who that is. I kind of know who that is. Dua Lipa makes great pop yeah. music, great dance music. Yeah. And my favorite thing about Dua Lipa is that she's a terrible performer. She has great music. <laughs> and then if you watch her on stage, it looks like <laughs> it's like a weekend at Bernie's situation. You're like, is this person alive? She gives it 110 um, percent. It's, it's I kind of rules it. Well, though, she gives it 110 percent in the studio. But on stage, she's given it 30 percent. <laughs> it's wild. I, I've, I love ne- I've never seen her perform live. And now I really want to. I'll link you to some stuff. Oh it's my God, thank it's you fun. So much. Um, so, sorry for derailing. Uh, what with the Lightning McQueen of it all? <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> I, I'm always terrified that they basically every time I come on, I'm like, I, so, I hope no one talks about sports because I think sports are cool, but I have nothing. To, I don't know anything about them. You know, it would be fun if I if I tried to to double con everyone on the call by being like, Dua Lipa is a famous. Baseball player, dually a famous <laughs> first base player. I I would have believed you. I would have been like, no, I, I swear, I could swear I knew that one, but I guess I like, didn't. No, no. Yeah, no. She's yeah. on the Dodgers. Yeah, no. I listened to Seb. <laughs> I listened to Seb Deliza, and I listened to Banks, and I listened to um, Billie Eilish. Thanks, and. Thanks, Rocks. Oh, Billie Eilish. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's a big one. I love how dark pop music is, and I really like dark stuff. Yeah. And, this is me trying to dig myself out of this hole. Um, but the thing I do have lots of weird opinions about are people who've been dead for 100 years who have no impact upon society anymore. And I don't have as much knowledge there. So wait a second. <laughs> Tell me. Tell me more. Okay, I will. Um, okay. My guest this week, we can get to this part. My guest this week is Jamie Loftus. <laughs> that, took so, that took like seven minutes. I love it. Okay, great. Um Jamie Loftus, a.k.a. the only person who can make a podcast about a comic strip I didn't like as a kid and then have me riveted, a.k.a. Yay. the only person who can make me feel better about the time in high school when I decided to get really into cool, edgy literature like uh, Nabokov. <laughs> and I had to make sure I pronounced that right um, <laughs> in this oh, particular yeah. or introduction. Else, I mean, that is that and Lightning McQueen culture. Yeah. Um, I really I really could have gotten you for, but yeah. truly yeah. very little else. Okay. Um, thrilled to be here thrilled to be I guess technically back yeah yeah Yeah. I mean I think for anyone who's not listening he was like we we just record these in one take Um, we have a five minute break but you all had to wait two days so I had some toast did anyone have any snacks I have a bowl of fruit that I can't eat because it'll make noise oof I pet my dog the whole time but she's a snack Actually, she's a whole meal. So Sophie, Sophie's teething on her own dog at home. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's Sophie on the call. Sophie is my producer. Um, I wrote in here a joke and it no longer works in the flow of things, so I'm not going to use it. I did appreciate it when I when I read it, though. Thanks. I'm going to use that joke later. I'm going to recycle that joke because now no one's heard it except you. It's really funny. All right. So this week, and poor Jamie doesn't get to know it. So this week, we're talking about the motherfucking anarchists in the Spanish Civil War. And you probably need to go listen to part one. Go listen to part one, please. I would have needed to. Yeah. All right. So where we last left our heroes, almost seven after 70 years of organizing, educating, striking, activisting, doing a murder here or there, three prime ministers dead, at least one resigned. All in the service of trying not to starve, they've beaten back a fascist invasion and handed, been handed a bunch of guns by the government. So, you know what time it is? It's the opposite of dictator time. <gasps> uh, it's expropriation time. it's peanut butter time. jelly time. Oh, Basically the same thing. expropriation time. Yeah, which is the annoying jargon word in academic leftism for stealing shit back from rich people that they shouldn't have had in the first place. Okay. So it is peanut butter jelly time. Yes, Absolutely. So a lot of revolutionaries wasted their time in the 19th century. Well, period. I could just end the sentence there. But they wasted a lot of time in the 19th century (laughs) arguing. I could also end the sentence there about whether peasants or urban workers were like the, quote, proper revolutionary class. But the anarchists Mm -hmm. in Spain didn't have this problem because they weren't detached theorists arguing about who would make a revolution. They were just peasants and urban workers. So they were like, we should make the revolution. The answer is us. And they had been trying for decades to collectivize their workplaces through all sorts of means, but the most effective one turned out to be having a revolution. Mm. So they finally have their chance, 70 years, and they did not let this chance pass them up. Within a year, they had 70% of the industry in Catalonia collectivized, which means that they had like taken it over, were running it with the workers themselves running the factories. That is a absurd i mean like that that's an impressive amount of organization to happen on such a short timeline yeah and 70% of agriculture in the nearby region of aragon was collectivized and other places all over republican held spain that i don't have the numbers in front of me for those were the two biggest areas but it was all over republican held spain and it was all in this decentralized fashion not from the top down so When workers took their factories over from their bosses, efficiency shot up. And this always made sense to me, like who knows how to run a factory better than the people who run the factory, who like do the work. Sometimes they would elect administrators from their own ranks. Um, I actually think in some cases, old bosses continued working in factories as equals to everyone else as like administrators. I'm not 100% sure because I read that, but it sounds so utopian that I like don't quite want to believe it. I mean, I actually want to believe it. That, I want to believe it too, but they they didn't give like any specific examples of that happening or anything like that. No, it was it was it was a a little bit of a throwaway line in a piece, and so I was like, I mean, it's a nice fantasy. I hope it really happened. Yeah, exactly. And so what they would do is they would elect an administrator and they would give them a mandate. They say we we'll, uh, we're electing you to accomplish the following thing, and if the administrator deviated from that, not if they like failed, I think, but if they like weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They would just recall mm-hmm. that person and elect a new one, which is the way that theoretically democracy is supposed to work is that you don't elect people to like tell you what to do. You elect people to like mm-hmm. handle stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. They made healthcare free. New hospitals were built pretty much right away. These like collectively run hospitals. The doctors, because 
the doctors went where they needed instead of where the rich were. And so they were able to like get a lot more done. And they also collectivized agriculture. And one of the things that's kind of important to me is that they didn't force collectivization on small farmers. They, which is a big difference in the, the sort of theory and practice of anarchist communism versus authoritarian communism. So people did go to the big landowners who owned all of the land that everyone else's gig economy working for and stole all their shit back. And were like, this is our land now. Sorry. And they would set up these collective farms on it. But if someone says, I don't want to be a collective farmer, I just want to farm for myself. They would be like, okay, here's your land. You can go do that. And so a lot of people went and did that and they became small farmers or they already were small farmers or whatever. And then they were like, after about a year, they would look over and they'd see the collective farms doing so much better. And they were like, okay, never mind. I want to go collectivize. And cool. And it matters to me because then it's 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 their choice, right? And I don't know, I, I get really teary-eyed about that. There's actually times throughout history where like people have been killed for saying, hey, why don't we um instead of forcing people to collectivize, offer them the chance to collectivize. And then the only thing was that basically they all believed that wage labor was exploitation. So you couldn't hire employees. But if you worked it yourself, like you and your family or whatever, you can you can have land and do it. Uh, yeah, that's an extremely powerful thing to see your peers making it work and then have to like, I don't know, question everything you've ever been told and be like, no, this yeah. clearly does work better and they're happier and they're that's that's yeah. very beautiful. Yeah. And so it wasn't just workplaces. Schools and popular education were like their thing. And so there's massive literacy campaigns. There's very low literacy rates among the workers prior to this. And everywhere they go, they set up schools and they start teaching children and adults both. And the economy was different in different places, right? Because this wasn't a overnight. I mean, it was actually very fast, but it wasn't a complete and total transformation of all elements of all parts of Republican Spain. So everything's kind of in this hybrid model. And the economy looks different. So some places, if there's enough of something, if there's surplus of whatever, you can literally just walk into the communal storehouse and take the thing you need. If you're like, I want a can of peaches. I don't know why you want a can of peaches. I think the song just came Look, into my head when I needed an example. <laughs> I was like, there's been there's been uh, great works of art about yeah. cans of peaches. Yeah, they, they come from a can. They were put there by a collective. And you don't know who Lightning McQueen is? You know... <laughs> It's very weird, selective lack of knowledge. Um, what I try to do is like pick a couple pop culture things and then reference. This isn't a good example because the song's from the 90s. But I sometimes try and come up with a couple pop culture things and like drop them into things so that people think I'm hip and with it. They're like, and oh, then she's just savvy. Yeah, we get it. Yeah. And then smile and nod when people talk about things I don't know about. Um, What's great is I'm starting to know your tell. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so if he's going to have a soundboard installed. No, I'm going to. I'm a gonna, siren start going. No, off. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to help you get away with the lie. I got oh, you. All right. All right. I appreciate it. That's what a producer does. Um, okay. So some places you could just walk in and take stuff, including cans of peaches. And mm -hmm. there's no money, no ration cards, no labor vouchers for some of these things in some places. Other stuff that's scarce, you might have to pay for it. And in some places, you would pay with a ration card. Basically, they would go around and say, like, how much does your family need? And then this is your ration card for that amount. So it's not tied into how much you work. And then in other places, I think, I think, but I'm not certain that that was slightly more the case in rural places. And in urban places, this other method was more common, but I'm not certain about that. In okay. other places, it was 
labor vouchers. So basically like one hour's work is equal to one hour's work, regardless of what job you do mm. um, in order to try and avoid economic inequality. And and there's like, you know, lots of people have argued about whether this, you know, someone who has to go to school for a very long time to be able to what they do, whatever this, I'm not trying to like claim this is a right. perfect no, system. That's a touchy subject, but that, but that is, I mean, definitely uh, foreign to us. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one source I read claimed that about a third of the Spanish population was involved in this revolution to one degree or another, like seven to 8 million people were involved in this. And of course, this is only in areas that weren't controlled by Franco. And so they, and the CNT is kind of running most of this, but not all of it. And they, they talk a big utopian game and they work their fucking asses off to try to live up to their utopian ideals, but they did not always succeed. There's, there's all kinds of shit they fucked up. And uh, like for one thing, a lot of people were like suddenly anarchists overnight. And mm-hmm. so this did lead to mob justice and unjustified violence. It gets mm-hmm. called the the Red Terror by the when the fascists take over, they call it the Red Terror as compared to like the fascist violence gets called the White Terror. Everyone in like 19th century Europe is really into every political ideology having a color. And huh. Yeah, I um, I was trying to think of a funny reason why that might be, but I think it might just be a them thing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of what gets called atrocities, I'm not going to call atrocities. A lot of it were atrocities. But like, for example, okay. the biggest thing that is controversial is they killed a lot of Catholic priests and which looks really bad at first glance. And a lot of times I think it was really bad. I think a lot of times it was unjustified. But a lot of other times they were very specifically killing the people who were like, had been snitching them out and getting everyone killed and were like the center of right-wing politics that was literally mm-hmm. working with the fascists and literally allied with the invading army. So in many cases, Catholic priests would, could be aligned with being called like right-wing thought leaders sort yeah. of things. Yeah, okay. totally. Okay. And it would be like yeah. the local person in your village who's feeding information to the fascist inv- army that is invading. Yeah, strategically, I I, uh, I see it. Yeah, and it gets it gets messier than that. But one thing that sure. I think matters is that it wasn't on a systemic level. Like the CNT was never like, and we hereby call for everyone to run around and you know do this stuff. And actually, a lot of people okay. work to try and stop the unjustified elements of it. Again, I feel bad anytime I'm like, let me defend atrocities because I'm like, I'm not. Uh, I guess I'm I'm trying to say it's messier than it is presented. Sure, sure. I know. I, th- I think that that's completely fair. And some of the other violence is against like landowners and stuff who are like, you can't steal our land. I'm like, eh, we're going to steal your land. But the, one of the reasons we know about the Red Terror is because they actually did believe in free speech. And so in the anarchists in particular, so the acts of violence and stuff would get recorded and would get out because they weren't stopping foreign journalists. I'm sure there were individual instances where people tried to stop them. I don't know. But I, I'm very aware of multiple instances where foreign journalists are writing about these things and are not stopped from writing about these things. Wow. As compared to the white terror, which the fascists really like preventing people from having free speech and writing yeah, down fascists, the stuff they're doing. Um, not known for their love of, in, spi- in spite of, yeah, totally. there's often screaming it. <laughs> yeah. uh, they actually do not like free speech as it pertains to making them look bad. Correct. The So the other thing that the anarchists talked a big game about and worked really hard at, but did not always pull off was women's liberation and gender mm. equality. And they were 
miles ahead of the Republicans who were miles ahead of the fascists, but they still mm -hmm. had miles to go. And there were a lot of people working to to cross those miles. I've now destroyed that analogy by taking it too far. Um, it's also not a specific Look, analogy. miles were crossed either way. Yeah, it might have been kilometer. Actually, I have no idea what people used to measure distance <laughs> in 1920s or 30s Spain. So, How dare you Americanize that analogy for every for, for all three of our benefit? Right, totally. And so the anarchists had been fighting for the liberation of women for a long ass time to various degrees of success. Like at an anarchist conference in 1872, 60 years prior, they had declared that women need to be equal to men in the workplace and the home both. But that was a conference of mostly men who said that. Sure. And a lot of the women involved were really interested in the destruction of the patriarchal family model and free love and what they called plural love, which I think would just actually be polyamory, abounded. Mm -hmm. And they also were huge into teaching birth control. Mm -hmm. And... They actually created this whole working class theory for family planning because everything had to like tie back into class politics for them because they're zealots sometimes. Sure. And mostly I think that they wanted it because they believed in the freedom of the individual to make choices. But they were like, okay, poor women suffer. These are women saying coming up with these things. Poor women suffer the most from having large families that are hard to feed. And beyond that, the the poor, which of which our anarchists are included, if they have fewer children, it lowers the pool of labor and gives more power to individual laborers, thus reducing unemployment. And also, if there's fewer kids, there's fewer people to go get shipped off to war. Cool. <laughs> cool reproductive <laughs> policy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I'm not not shocked to hear it. I was in, in the show I'm working on right now. There was... I'm, I'm sure, I mean, you, you've probably heard of her before, but Victoria Woodhull, who was like the first woman to ever, ooh, I get to teach you something. Yeah, please do. Ooh, there, well, I didn't, I didn't understand the term free love as it mm -hmm. existed in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, so I found out because I'm writing, uh, I'm working on a show about um, the ghost church of America, American spiritualism. And there was a spiritualist, presidential candidate in hmm. the early 1870s i think it was 72 she was like ostracized from her own religious community who believe in talking to spirits because they were like well yeah ghosts are real but a woman as president ridiculous uh, <laughs> uh -huh. um but she was running on a platform that involved it, it was a women's rights platform it was a spiritualism platform and it was mm -hmm. a free love platform and the only thing that like her definition of that was even more limited. It was like it didn't even include the concept of polyamory. It just said you can get divorced without being, you know, oh, like yeah. thrown mm -hmm. out of society. And let's maybe think about, um, you know, reproductive rights. And she was thrown out of ghost church. <laughs> so any 19th century, I, I just had never heard free love in the 19th century sense. And you're like, wow, this is incredibly low stakes. Like, yeah, holy cow. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and some of these people were pushing for something that looks like polyamory. But yeah, I think a lot of them was like secular marriage. You know, the idea that you could kind of enter and leave. Right. Most of them are pushing for like our mom's you know lives which <laughs> yeah. i guess is what it eventually led to but it yeah i just was kind of interested yeah. in like the evolution of the term free love and how it was kind of demonized for for no reason 
Yeah, it's like the the Simpsons thing where they're like, I was saying boo earns, you know, and they're like, free love means you get to sleep whoever you want. They're like, we're not saying that. And I'm like, I'm saying that. Right. But then you're like, we are saying that also. Like, yeah. let's have a conversation about why you feel so weird about polyamory, you fucking yeah. weirdos. Mind your own fucking business. Some of the some of the women that I was reading about for this this chunk about the fight for gender equality within the CNT, it would talk about the way that they would like scandalize their family. There there'd be like third generation anarchists, and they would scandalize their parents by going on bicycle trips that are like mixed men and women, when they're all like twenty years old. And I'm like, the past is wild. Yeah, for it. <laughs> Just yeah. Like we've got bigger fish to fry, and we're already frying them. Why are you being weird about my bike? Like, yeah. I'm totally. just trying to have a weekend. Yeah. So because men within the CNT were failing regularly, a bunch of women got together and were like, we ha- we have to do something about this. And actually a lot for a while, a lot of anarchist women just didn't join the CNT and they just did their anarchist organizing outside of that institution. Mm-hmm. But I think as things started to heat up, it became like this is a lot of the sort of more independent anarchists joined the CNT out of like, well, we're having a revolution and this is the organizing body. So let's join the organizing mm-hmm. body of it. And so in the 1930s, a bunch of different anarchist women were talking about this problem more and more. And so two different groups of women in the CNT, one in Madrid and one in Barcelona, were f- two groups were founded to address it. And the Madrid faction called itself Mujeres Libres, uh, Free Women, which is a way cooler name than the Barcelona name, which translates to feminine culture group. I mean, not untrue, but could use a second draft. Fortunately, what they did is in Barcelona, they just changed their name to Mujeres Libres also. Good call. Good call. So I don't know if you knew this, Jamie, but one of the main sponsors that we're trying to have on this show is anything that's good. And in particular, anything that isn't a product or a service, but is just a concept that is a good concept. That's what we're trying to to get advertising. Sometimes I think we have to take other ads as well. Um, Mm. I've been a big advocate of the potato and tap water. But if there's anything that's just sort of generally good, potable tap water. If there's anything so generally good sure. you'd like to be sponsored by? Oh, something I would like to be sponsored by. Yeah, I would like to be sponsored by um, my neighbor's lemon tree, which mm-hmm. in many ways I am sponsored by because sometimes <laughs> she'll be like, there's too many lemons and now there's a bag of them on your front step. And I think that it's one, it's one of the best parts of my week. And it seems to bring her joy as well. So I'd like to bring my my neighbor's lemon tree into the mix. And that's also a really good metaphor for the whole hope thing that we try to go for here. All right. Well, we are only sponsored by those things and anything else that we're sponsored by slipped in by accident. Here's some ads. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, we are back, and we are talking about the the women of Mujeres Libres, which I guess is repetitive. The um, so <laughs> so one of the initiators of Mujeres Libres, and they didn't use the word founder because that sounded too hierarchical. Because anarchists are caricatures of themselves. I love them. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, was this lesbian anarchist poet named Lucia Sanchez Sarnel, and she would write about the the need for basically feminism, although they actually very consciously didn't call themselves feminists because they didn't trust feminism to be not trying to create power over men uh, because they had only been exposed to certain elements of feminism, I guess. Um, And this caused tension years and years later, like decades later. They were like, we don't like these young feminists because they're just trying to like take over and they hate the men or whatever. Classic feminists. (laughs) Yeah. But at the time, they're in the middle of having a revolution and they're fighting for women's inclusion and they're creating women-only groups within it. And and so they started a magazine called Mujeres Libres and then also wrote about these issues in the main newspaper of the CNT. And what what year are we in now? Just 30, um... uh, 36, I believe. They start the magazine and then 37, I think, is when it becomes groups. And the whole Spanish Civil War period is 1936 to 1939, basically. So they end up founding this nationwide, sorry, initiating a nationwide federation of 30,000 autonomous women. And they had a whole bunch of goals. So they just started working towards all of them all at once. They would set up flying daycare centers so women could drop their kids off if they wanted to go to organizing meetings, because this is a way in which women were being disincluded from the process of creating a new society. They set up women's centers to teach adult women. They focused on fighting illiteracy, which was even worse among women. They also taught birth control and self-pleasure. And they... Oh my gosh. I know. These people just rule. Um, Originally, the entire episode was literally just going to be about them. And then I like wrote the context around them. And I was like... In order to understand like, wait, the context, this is a of this. whole first episode. <laughs> yeah. Were you like, were you like, cool people, cool stuff? Yeah, these are these are cool people who did cool stuff. My head is Libras. Oh, okay, absolutely. They are like this the pinnacle awesome. of the cool ones in here, and they they taught trades that were traditionally only practiced by men, like auto mechanics and tram driving. They were not themselves a militia, but they supported the women who were fighting in the militias, and they led military trainings. And I don't know if you've ever. <laughs> gone to any training that's about how to shoot and things like that but 
learning from men is not always the best environment for learning this sort of skill. Oh my gosh, whoa. (laughs) Does it perhaps feel a little unsafe? (laughs) Yeah, weird. No kidding, because historically, I don't see the tension. I don't see where that would come from. Yeah, I think it was like some specific thing that was happening only in the 1930s in Spain. It must have just been a yeah a generational thing. I can't relate with that at all. Yeah. So so it was it was women showing women how to shoot guns. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and like lead military, you know, excursions and and all that stuff. Because they're in all of this is happening. There's also a war on, right? And mm-hmm. at the at the start of the war, women were in the fight. They were absolutely like there at the very beginning. But, and actually. Originally, there's one of the reasons there's so many photos of women with rifles from the Spanish Civil War is that people used it as propaganda, I think, on both sides. I think the fascists were like, look at these terrible people. They have women fight. And the the anarchist women were like, look, we're awesome. We're going to take pictures. But then I think some of the like leftist men were like, let's shame leftist men into fighting by taking pictures of women fighting and being like, you coward. These women are doing their fighting for you. I hate that I yeah. would fully still believe if that were happening right now, yeah. where it's like, isn't it upsetting to say, oh, the left needs their women to fight? You're like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Like, yeah, oh, that's OK. Well, we have twice I as mean, many. Right. Like, I mean, regardless, uh, I'm glad that I'm going to look up the pictures right now. I'm thrilled they exist. And so gradually pressure from the government removed women from the front lines. And one of the most baffling and angry making things in this whole thing is that the anarchists in the end went along with it. And so women were no longer allowed to fight in the front lines of the military. And I think it was happening around the same time that all of the militias were starting to get incorporated into the regular army, which is stuff that I'll get to later. And so there's like, I'll read stories about, actually I'll come up later about a woman who, you know, went and fought fascists and then ended up in a munitions factory at the end of the war or whatever instead and there was a lot of things where they basically like the government was often the one supplying the guns and they would say, if you let women fight in your militia, we won't give you any guns anymore. I don't know. And, and the reason for this is that all of the government didn't really want there to be a revolution against the government for some strange reason. And they also specifically huh. didn't want to alienate the potential allies of England and France, which, spoiler alert, are not their allies and never become their allies. <laughs> But they're like afraid of seeming too radical. Not the anarchists. They love seeming too radical. But the the government is like, we look crazy to the Western proper good patriarchal world by having women on the front lines. You're making us look bad. So by the end of the war, women are no longer at least openly. I assume that there was probably many women fighting covertly, but I don't have any evidence about that. I just that every single war that's ever happened, women fight in it just usually covertly that is so again it's like not uh particularly surprising but that that is an issue where fascists and uh anarchists who are men they're like well you know we don't disagree on everything we don't believe in women's rights per se so yeah god mostly the i think it's mostly the republican men and the the like Sure, but, sure. The more, but maybe like, I'm being left. too kind, you know, honestly, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know far better than I do. I mean, yeah. it's certainly, I mean, it, it, <laughs> not to draw an immediate parallel, but, you know, I'm 
far be it for me to say a center left men doesn't want <laughs> women to have rights. There's a bajillion examples that live within, a, you know, a mile of. of yeah. Men. And there's also far left men and anarchist men who feel the exact same way and like. For sure. You know, can't say it in public, but act that way in private. And I would hope less. Yeah. And so. I was saying that a lot of anarchists were second or third generation in the movement, but some radicalized their parents. And I want to tell you about one of my favorite of the Mujeres Libres women. Pepita Carpena was raised working class, like like started as a seamstress when she was 12 and two of her five siblings died in infancy. And and she hung out with more with boys more than girls. And so when the boys started getting recruited to union meetings, she started going to. And when she was like 14 or something, she started going to these meetings and she described herself as a a mascot to the anarchist steel workers union. And when her dad complained, basically being like, you're 14, you go and hang out with these like anarchist steel worker union men. That's so cool. And so she's like, well, dad come too. So dad goes and dad is like, Oh, this is cool. And he signs up. Um, and so now she's a committed anarcho syndicalist and she starts organizing her fellow seamstresses. She's a teenager and the bosses find some excuse to fire her. And it's really transparently because of her union organizing. So a lot, awful mm-hmm. lot of steelworkers. Uh, and the way it gets described in the piece that I read is they complained. But I believe that this is very in quotes that they complained. And they complained to the boss and then she was reinstated. So, and she wrote memoirs, but only they're only available in Spanish and French. And I, I don't read either of those particularly well. So I don't know exactly what happened, but I basically think that they just showed up and were like, you're going to fucking give her job back. Wow. That is, I mean, truly, I'm I'm trying to think of if there's anything. I've definitely moved my parents further to the left. I don't think I fully radicalized them. I think the best radicalization job I ever pulled was getting my dad into bright eyes. That's pretty good. Not easy to do. I Not know easy. It wasn't is. easy. And it took time. Okay. <laughs> I know you do. I could tell because you didn't do your tell. <laughs> I brought my, I got my dad to come to a Bright Eyes concert that he thought it was dangerous for me to go to alone. And I made him stand in the back the whole time and pretend he didn't know me. And then at the end, he was like, that was pretty good. That is, that's a really good dad move. You know, it's like, all right, if you're going to come, then you're not allowed to pretend to know me. And he accepted this. And it seems like he like my memory is he was standing on the kind of this like back line of parents mm-hmm. that were probably all running a similar bargain with their 14 year olds. <laughs> I mean, that's why we stand Mike Loftus all day, every day. Yeah. Quick shout out. Quick shout out to <laughs> I just want to quickly pu- plug my dad. <laughs> He's retired. <laughs> the, the time I saw Bright Eyes was because I didn't know who they were. It so impressed Ooh. them that they let me in. I was like a hitchhiking, like living out of a backpack, dirty kid. And I was hanging out mm-hmm. outside a Bright Eyes show, waiting for my friend to give me a ride somewhere who was in the show. And the percussionist mm-hmm. of Bright Eyes was really excited to talk to us and and said, well, you know, I was like, oh, are you in a band? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what band are you in? And he's like, oh, I'm in Bright Eyes. And I was like, what do you all sound like? And he's like, you haven't heard of us? And I was like, no. Ooh-hoo-hoo. He was like, power move all right well yeah i know exactly it was great and so he was like well i'll let you in and i was like ah, i'm here with all my friends and he was like i'll put you all on the guest list and i was like okay 
And uh, wow, you really you really shook him to his core by not knowing who Bright Eyes was. He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, you're about to know. I know. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed it. It was a very good show. Um, they put on a fun show. Yeah. That is uh, what a what a beautiful story. I love it. Ends that. well for everybody. Yeah. I'm happy. All right. So Pepita. Uh, Pepita. Her niece eventually writes a novelization of her biography, which is just cool as hell. Ooh. But uh, that's uh, I want. Give me that confidence for one half of one second. <laughs> that's awesome. And so during the war, she joins the militia called Libertarian Youth. And as a side note, libertarian uh, was an anarchist term for socialism in mm. the 19th century. And it was actually very consciously <sighs> stolen. Like there's a literal quote. I don't have it written down in here anymore. It got cut from the script at some point. But if you if you look up the word libertarian on Wikipedia, there's the direct quote from Murray Rothbard where he's like, we stole this word from the anarchist. Fuck yeah. So anyway. That's so dark. I, I get that. I wasn't aware of, of that lineage that's extremely dark and so it is so it is i mean i know that this is true but it's just always a bummer to hear that like explicitly stated of like oh those moments where you have to explain the complicated history of a word yeah. that probably means that some asshole has won yeah. and <laughs> taken the word at some point totally. and that's why uh, so people you know centuries later will um or decades later at least will um get bored and stop listening to you yeah yeah i'm talking about a war where the the Republicans and the Libertarians are the left side of the, you know, are the leftists. I mean, I am confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They won. <laughs> totally. So before she turns 18, she assaults a fascist barracks. God damn. She's so cool. <laughs> and then later she works at a grenade factory. Uh, it, it might be a munitions factory, but she made grenades at the factory. So I'm going to call it a grenade factory. Because it's a cooler yeah. word. For her, it was a grenade factory. Yeah. And she stayed an anarchist her entire life. She survives the war. She mm -hmm. she worked at an anarchist research institute. She participated in conversations about feminism and the movement. And I could just... and she, So she's working at this library. And I, I just really like the idea of walking into a library and then the woman in, in her 80s is helping you. And it's like, oh, I used to make grenades to throw at fascists after I was done throwing grenades at fascists. Anyway, what can I help you find? That is better than... The beginning of Titanic. For me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're like, who is this woman? And she's like, oh, it's uh it's better than being than the naked drawing on the Titanic. I made grenades um yeah. to kill fascists with. Yeah. That's in I, I want that version of Titanic. I I you work in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, it's true. I'll quit my I, okay. job to go do this. So if you don't listen to that part. Leonardo DiCaprio has drawn a pencil sketch of a topless <laughs> Let's do it. woman yeah. making grenades to kill fascists with, which you might need a, a like voice bubble, which mm -hmm. maybe <laughs> makes it less artful to state her political beliefs. But I think we could we'll make it work. It's just yeah. a first draft. Yeah. OK, and so while anarchists are collectivizing huge chunks of Spain, they and others are are fighting against the fascists and. At the very beginning, it's looking good for the Republic. The Republic is the non-fascists. The fascists, when they, they take a little less than half the army, a little less than half the navy, they take more than half the guns. They also take most of the officers and all the best ships and the most experienced troops by far. Okay, it actually wasn't looking very good at the beginning, but their initial <laughs> coup is defeated 
And the Republican had the major cities, the industry, more land and more people. And they had the militias. Plus, England and France are right there. And there's no way they're going to let fascists take over a country right on their doorstep. Doesn't sound like them to me. Yeah, I'm just kidding. That's exactly what they do. Yeah. So and I'm like mad at some shit that communists did during the war and some communists are mad about the shit the anarchists did during the war. But the reason that Spain lost had nothing to do with any of that. Spain lost because it was outgunned. And the reason it was outgunned is because the fascist countries, Italy and Germany, were right the fuck there with guns and troops and everything like immediately. Whereas the great defenders of democracy signed a non-intervention pact, ignoring the fact that the other side was ignoring this pact. And then they enforced this pact by setting up a fucking naval blockade to make sure that no one would help the republic, which didn't stop U.S. companies, Texaco and GM, from collaborating with the fascists either. Wow. Icons, icons, one and all. Yeah. So the reason that Franco won the Spanish Civil War and the reason that Spain was fascist for 40 years is because the upper classes of England and France were either one fucking cowards afraid of causing a world war, which spoiler alert happened anyway, or they were just putting their class interests first and were afraid of a leftist Spain. Um, but it really was just the upper classes. The working classes were like, no, fuck fascism and yay, socialism and anarchism, and communism and all that other shit. And so there's huge demonstrations in France, for example, advocating for the French to sell arms to the Spanish Republic. But huge demonstrations don't always do anything. Right. And so the Republic is fighting with what one volunteer called museum relics. They have like World War I rifles and obsolete machine guns. And the fascists were fighting with modern shit. Okay. And when Franco comes, he comes as a conqueror. He's cut his teeth in colonial conquest in Africa. And it was his colonial army that he invaded with. and. Mm -hmm. He had with him tens of thousands. I've read 30,000 and I've read 70 to 80,000 Moroccan troops, mostly Muslim. God. Okay. So the Republic. So Franco absolutely racializes this. And he's like, he refers to them as savages. And he basically is like using the fear of the other against the Republic. The Republic itself sometimes played into this and sometimes didn't. It's like sometimes they would like, we must stop these invading savage hordes. Um, the anarchists didn't say that kind of shit, fortunately, at least as far as like I or the people I talked to were able to find. But it's a part that gets left out of a lot of the conversations about the Spanish Civil War because no one quite wants to admit that a huge chunk of the people fighting for the right wing were the troops who were recruited in a colonial state, the colonial state of Morocco. Thank um, you for for clarifying that, though, because I do feel like that is like, I mean it's you know not like not too surprising to hear that there were people on the left who played into colonialism but were yeah. also like politically aligned in a way that like holds up in the modern sense and it's just that's incredibly dark and messy and yeah i'm gl i'm glad that that like distinction is made cuz sometimes it's i don't know with conflicts like this you're like oh well yeah uh the good is sometimes bad <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And there's a lot of that's that happens in this war. Yeah. Um, so so Franco's side in history books, they either get called the fascists or more often they get called the nationalists, but they did not call themselves nationalists. They called themselves nationals, which is like instead of calling themselves the Spanish patriots, they were calling themselves the Spanish people. You know, it's like their name was the Spaniards. Basically, they're the nationals. And because all of their enemies are 
race traders and Jews and not real Spaniards from their point of view. Um, during the lead up to the conflict, again, this will be totally unfamiliar to the modern audience, the fascists spread propaganda complaining about uh, Judeo-Bolshevik Masons. Um, huh. <laughs> they were complaining about a secret society Jewish communist conspiracy, which basically means QAnon fucking invaded Spain. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, an interesting visual. An interesting visual. Yeah. God, I, I, I'm still stuck on forcing colonialized Moroccans to participate. It's just like so, I mean, I, I know it yeah. happens a million times throughout history, but it's just like so uh, upsetting to be reminded of. That's. Yeah. And QAnon to have to fight alongside. I know. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I like, I thought really hard about. It. I was like, you know, there, there's, there's stuff about race that doesn't get talked about enough with the Spanish Civil War, and I'm, I'm gonna try and touch right. on it where I can. But a lot of it is sort of like kind of beyond my, uh, my level of knowledge. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have, you know, extensive knowledge on that end either. But I, it's, I do, yeah, I do feel like anytime any like when sometimes when war is discussed, the like levels of colonial participation and like how colonialism yeah. affects major um, military units is like not even addressed. And then you have to like seek out information on your own. And of course, it's always the worst possible thing you could imagine. And yeah, I wish it was like more standardized in how we talk about wars. Anyways. No, I mean, and it's like because everyone is when they're trying to write, when they're claiming to write neutral history, everyone's writing propaganda for one side or the other or some complicated mix or whatever. And, and that's like right. one of the reasons that I'm so upfront about my biases, but then I try to undercut it because it's like, I, I have to dig to find context about, they launched the invasion from Morocco. And yet I have to dig to find information about how the colonization ties into it, you know, which and is like, so like absurd and intentional and like, yeah, ugh, man. Yeah. So, the Republic is not without allies, although they're largely without allies. Their two allies are Mexico, who's offering them money and diplomatic help, like they they do a lot of the diplomacy stuff that happens, and then the USSR. And the USSR is their main military ally, but they're not actually sending stuff for free. Basically, the Republic transfers almost all of their gold reserves to the Soviet Union and oh. basically buy guns and tanks and shit in advance and they get some modern stuff and some like really old terrible stuff and the a few troops as well came to help but nothing compared to like like germany was pretty openly practicing how do we bomb a city into oblivion by mm. going to spain and and practicing it and that's where picasso's guernica comes from ah uh, okay okay so just like this uh twisted dress rehearsal situation totally so the USSR donates stuff, and this comes with a very heavy price that I'll get into more in a little bit. But it was the politically motivated working class, and in particular, like rank-and-file communists of other countries who come through for the republic. The, the famed International Brigade, which was mostly communist-run and was the biggest chunk of the volunteers, plus a ton of people coming from outside that framework who come and join the militias. And they're they're generally organized by language, group, and nationality. So you like show up and join like the French-speaking chunk and go off and fight the fascists or, you know, there's a lot of people coming from all over the place in really kind of beautiful ways. The, the U S force was called the Abraham Lincoln brigade and it was 3000 strong. And there was white troops and black troops intermingled in the same units. And this is the, 
This gets called the first time U.S. soldiers fought in mixed units, although actually another episode that I'm researching right now about the Battle of Blair Mountain had on a kind of smaller scale, had also black and white mixed troops. Um, Oh, interesting. But this is still decades before the U.S. Army integrates its units. Sure. And Oliver Law is a black communist from the U.S., and he's the first African-American to lead white U.S. troops at a higher level of command. First season charge... I know, right? Um, <laughs> first, he's in charge of the machine gun company, and then later he's in charge of the entire Abraham Lincoln Brigade, although he's killed during the fighting at a place called Mosquito Ridge, okay. which is a terrible name. I was like, not, as, not, not on the same caliber of name as Oliver Law. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mosquito Ridge. God. I know. What a place to die. I know. That sounds like the worst preschool ever. <laughs> it's preschool hunger games you know (laughs) a militarized preschool yeah welcome to mosquito ridge and it's just the baby muppets killing each other yeah (laughs) so so exiled jews uh who are leaving nazi occupied areas fought in the Mm -hmm. brigades as well which of course the fascists made a big stink about and almost a third of the U.S. volunteers were also Jewish. So basically, like, the international working class was like, this is a big fucking deal. This is not just about Spain. This is about, we need to stop fascism. We need to stop racism. We need to stop all of these things. And, like, it's kind of like everybody's proxy war, except for the Western democracies who are like, oh, we don't don't know. We don't know these guys. (laughs) Again, nothing you can relate with uh, now. Yeah. That's that. So, so there so there was like an awareness that solidarity was necessary, um, yes. like selfishly and unselfishly a little bit on that front. Right. Yeah. OK. Um, and so I had to figure out how to shoehorn an Irish, the Irish into here somehow. And here's where oh, I'm going to do well, it. Well, my people, thank you. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so the Irish volunteers come to Spain, too. But the thing is, um, uh, more than twice as many of them come to join the wrong side. <laughs> No, <laughs> but, but, okay. And so they come and they join the nationalists. Um, what year is this? 1936, 1937. This could literally maybe. be my family. That's... Yeah. Well, and it's because the Catholic church is under attack from their point of view. The war wasn't being presented. Like now, most of the time you'll see it as democracy versus fascism because it was, but mm-hmm. it also got presented as communism versus Catholicism, which to be clear, it also was, you know? Sure. So less than 400 Irish volunteers fight for the Republic, mostly communists, and then 700 fight for the fascists. But eh, here's where it gets better. The fascist Irish sucked at fighting. They were good. So awful that it rules. They showed up. They accidentally fired on other fascists and killed a bunch of fascists. And then they were just so drunk and unruly that everyone just refused to take them into their like command and then they got sent home (laughs) that's real fun that is i mean that sounds like a mean story someone would tell about irish people to humiliate them but this in this case they simply just did it yeah well 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 (laughs) um you know at, at least this time um generational alcoholism um, one in a way. Yeah. So they were just sent home. They're just like, you're not a valuable addition 
Yeah, because no one wanted to leave them or whatever. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm proud to say that we were terrible at being fascists. We were too drunk to be effective fascists. Yeah. And that is beautiful. That is really funny. But the but we're but Mm -hmm. but the other side, they weren't sent home? Or was everybody sent home? Just the fascist Irish were sent home? No, the other side, the Irish stayed and fought. They shot in the right direction. Yeah. Which actually means that both sides came and shot fascists. It's just one True. side came intending to shoot fascists and one side came <laughs> intending to shoot it anti-fascists. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, fa- fellow fascist. Yeah. yeah. Um, hilarious. Great. Yeah. Love it. 10 out of 10. Thanks. And here's where I should have a clever ad break transition, but I don't have one. So instead, here's oh, some ads. Oh, I wait. Oh, one. Sophie has one. Oh, I was going to say, you know what else is 10 out of 10? Uh, Jamie's neighbor's lemon tree. Oh, that's, that's true. true. And I hear she's advertising with us now. Yeah. (laughs) And all of the other sponsors of this show you can listen to now. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. And we are back. And we're going to talk about the weirdest part of the whole thing. Ooh, wait, we haven't gotten to the weirdest part yet? No, no, because we haven't gotten to the anarchists in government. Ooh, okay. Which Margaret actually titled anarchists in government. What? Yeah, that's the title of the section in the script. (laughs) Anarchists in government. So... On the 4th of September, 1936, this kind of moderate socialist, Francisco Largo Caballero, was appointed prime minister pretty much to run the war effort. He'd been leader of the Socialist Union, the UGT, which is smaller than the CNT, but still a very notable union. And after three months, on December 4th, 
he managed to convince the CNT to let him appoint four of them as ministers into the government. I think basically because he genuinely believed in the popular front thing and that everyone should work together and or that he was trying to bring the anarchists to heel so that they'd play ball with the rest of the left and coordinate in the war against the fascists, which don't actually have to be opposing thoughts for him, you know? Sure. This is controversial, anarchists joining the government. It was controversial with everyone. The Soviet-aligned folks did not like it. The Western democracies mm -hmm. did not like it. The rank-and-file anarchists did not like it. Well, you wouldn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one scholar I talked to referred to it as sort of a, a generation war with the, within the anarchists. The older anarchists were more all right with this. They were like, look, whatever it takes to get this shit done. Uh, and the younger ones were like, no, what the fuck? I do like when someone manages to come up with an idea that pisses everybody off, no matter yeah. what their belief system. <laughs> totally. It's a rare, it's, I feel like it's almost kind of really hard to do, but anarchist joining government definitely falls into that category. Yeah. Even some of the anarchists who joined the government were also pissed off about it. <laughs> um, two of them, because two of the people who join are sort of moderate and two of them are way more radical. And they end up the ministers of commerce, industry, health, and justice in Spain. So, so I'm going to tell you about them. So okay. Joan Piero was a, a glassmaker who spent his whole life working in a cooperatively run glass factory in Catalonia, which is actually a co-op that s survived until 2008. But Joan, oh, did, wow. he did not survive as long. So it's well, a long time. Yeah. As minister of industry, he tried to pass a resolution to collectivize all of the industry in Spain, since that was the anarchist goal. But the law got rewritten over and over again by the rest of the government until it was basically meaningless, which is uh, pretty much they did better rather than working in the government to collectivize. They did much better when they like showed up with guns and said, uh, we're taking over the factory because we're the people who work here. But he puts a lot of finance towards cooperative industry, especially anything related to war production. And then because of this, I think he gets demoted to commissioner of electricity. And then he flees the country when the country falls to fascism. And then he's captured by fucking Nazis in France, sent back to Spain, and executed by Franco. Boo. Okay. Yikes. Okay. So Juan Lopez Sanchez was an anarchist construction worker. And like Joan, he was kind of a moderate. He was less super excited about anarchism and more excited about trade unionism and like his balance between the two. Okay. He, but he did do six years in jail for fighting for anarchy from 1920 to 1926, which is longer than I've ever been in jail fighting for anarchy. So I'm not going to cast the first stone about that. Sure. He he winds up the Minister of Commerce. But then when Franco takes over, he fucks off for a couple decades and then he comes back and he's no longer an anarchist and he talks shit on the CNT and he gets really into this weird version of syndicalism that's fascistic. So actually fuck this guy and I will be the first to cast stones. Actually, many people probably cast stones. God, what a journey. Yeah, I know. So then you have another Joan, uh, Joan Garcia y Oliver. He gets called alternatively... Uh, Joan or Juan, but Joan is the Catalan name and he was Catalan. So I'm going to go with that. Anyway, he was born super fucking poor. His mom worked, quote, on the street, which is probably a euphemism for sex work. I wish people would stop being so shitty to sex workers and act like it's especially shameful. Like, why am I reading anarchist right. history where it's like, this guy stabbed three bosses and chucked a bomb into a crowd of rich people, but they're like too afraid to say like this lady fucked dudes for they're a living. They're still like tiptoeing around <laughs> yeah. stating sex work. Like, yeah. Yeah. People are babies. Yeah. So he worked in a bag factory since he was 11. He became an anarchist at the age of 18 in 1919. But by 1922, he's part of an anarchist guerrilla group called fucking Crucible, uh, 
which also had this nice. boring name of Solidarity, but they had Crucible as one of their names, and that's the better name, so I'm using it. Yeah, let's go with uh, that one. And there's at least four women in this like guerrilla gang of anarchists, and they these were the people doing the. They, this is the equivalent of the people who are like rolling around three on a motorcycle, you know. Um, they're into the retaliatory assassination game against the bosses, and they were three good at it. Three anarchists in a trench coat. I love. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Juwan claims that they were the best working class terrorists. That's his claim. And in the another a good band name, a good band name. <laughs> you true. must admit. Yeah. Which is actually that breaks my rule. Usually when people say that's a good band name, it actually is a terrible band name. But I would totally listen to a band called Working Class Terrorists. I so. also would. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the early 1920s, they kill a fucking cardinal, which is the rank just below Pope uh, because he'd been no. hiring pistoleros to kill anarchists. How'd they pull that one off? That's impressive. I don't know. I want to know more about it. Um, wow. And then after he kills the cardinal, this is like the 1920s, he fucks off to France and then he plots to kill both the Spanish king and Mussolini. But I think the plan never got very far because I haven't found, but I haven't found the details. So he crosses back over into Catalonia. He gets arrested. He gets released with all the other political prisoners uh, in 1931, a different time that all the political prisoners got released. And so, you know, and then he lives a nice quiet life. Just kidding. Okay. So he, he tries twice to overthrow the second (laughs) Republic with the rest of the CNT He's thrown in jail both times. Once again, he's released when they arrest when they release all the anarchist prisoners. He also invented, probably invented the red and black flag, which is the black flag with like it's like a triangle of red and a triangle of black. It's kind of I the know the one. Yeah, it's like the main anarchist flag besides a black flag. Yeah. And when the war breaks out, he helps organize militias. He joins one and he marches the front to shoot fascists. And then he becomes the Minister of Justice. And as the Minister of Justice, he ends court fees and then destroys criminal records. Um, okay, okay. I'm on board. Yeah. And then after the war, he goes into exile in Mexico. And I think he actually does live quietly after that, but I'm not sure. Okay. And finally, you've got, I like doing my like list of characters, like even though these are, uh, these are some of the more complicated characters, but Federica Monsaini. Sure. She's the minister of health. She's also the first woman minister in Spanish history. Mm-hmm. And I, I first ran across her when I was researching anarchist fiction back in the day because she was a second generation anarchist. Her parents ran a bunch of periodicals, including fiction periodicals. And so she mm-hmm. wrote books as a teenager. She just like wrote novels that her parents published. That's so cool. And then she married an anarchist who was cellmates with her dad, which I don't know. It just seems weird to me, but maybe that's totally a normal thing to do. I- I'm going to go out on a limb and call me, you know, listeners feel free to call me close-minded and evil. I think that that's maybe weird. Yeah. I'm going to bravely say that's weird. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe, you know, I mean, who knows? Like maybe the fact, I don't know, whatever. Anyway. uh, I mean, if your dad happens to be soulmates with your soulmate, that's, now that's just a rom-com. So maybe Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a rom-com with the anarchists on motorcycles. That, okay. I'm coming around to the idea. Okay, cool. So (laughs) as Minister of Health, she vehemently did not want to be Minister of Health, but basically the rest of the CNT was like, we really actually need to do this. So she agrees. And so um, she's made Minister of Health and she legalizes abortion. And in December 1936, it's the same year that Stalin criminalized abortion in the USSR, which means that when she legalizes abortion, Spain becomes the only country in the Western world with legal abortion. Wow. Which I'm like kind of like proud of that one, you know? 
That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, that's like incredible. Yeah. She also sets up educational facilities for women. And unlike previous ventures that the government had been setting up, she lets in unmarried women and sex workers into the educational facilities. She also helps get orphans and other kids the fuck to France and out of Spain as the fascists are like slowly taking over. Mm-hmm. And then when the war goes badly and it's all over, she she fucks off to France herself. At first, she's turned away from the border with like all the other starving refugees, but then someone recognizes her and she's like important with a capital I. So they like let her across the border and she stays rad. She works on organizing anarchist shit in France. She tries to start secret anarchist groups in fascist Spain, all that kind of shit. There's one other anarchist politician to talk about. This is just so weird to me that like I'm like it's fascinated by these people. Every time I hear the phrase, it like pings your brain as no, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it is sort of no, no. I mean, but whatever. It's shit's I mean, yeah, more messy than anyone wants it, it to be. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. So the mayor of Madrid is also the director of prisons. Is an anarchist. So now that it's like a triple negative. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, how the fuck does this happen? And yeah, and the answer possible? is kind of interesting. I okay. He um. Melchor Rodriguez Garcia. He was a former prisoner and he was a prison rights activist. And and basically what he does when he's director of prisons in Madrid is he stops people from lynching the prisoners. Because there's this revolution happening and also this war happening. And so there's all of these nationalist and fascist and right wing prisoners. And everyone's like, we're going to go kill them. And he's like, Mm -hmm. you can't. There are prisoners. We actually have to treat them okay. They're prisoners of war, whatever. Sure. And so weirdly, that's the way that you become the anarchist director of prisons is that you (sighs) defend the prisoners. That's always such an absolute mindfuck because it's so rare. Like I feel like changing the system from the inside is a dog whistle that's so frequently weaponized Uh that when there is an example of it, you're like that what what's the catch what uh-huh. is there a catch uh-huh. there actually kind of isn't with him um but i think the catch is that none of this would have worked if it wasn't happening at the same time as a revolution and a war sure um maybe without the war it would have been better without the war but like if like someone just became the director of prisons to defend the prisoners it wouldn't work it would only work in this like larger context push for collectivization like that's i mean that's mm-hmm. my opinion about it i i you know no, that um, makes sense. But um, and the other thing that he did, which I think is really cool, is that the Soviets, the the communists, were running these illegal secret prisons, and they were like torturing everyone, including other leftists, and doing all this terrible stuff. I'm going to get to in a minute. And he worked to uncover and reveal the secret prisons. So he was like this anti-prison guy who also ran prisons, okay. and it's fucking messy. Um, and the reason he was the mayor, I believe, I'm not an I'm less versed in this guy than some of the other people. I found him like right near the end of my research. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I think he's the mayor because everyone else fucks off. And he's like, well, someone's going to stick around like until the bitter end. And so he sticks around right. till the bitter end. So he's actually, I think the person who hands over, like coordinates the surrender to Franco. Fascinating. And during, then he's put on trial, of course, because the fascists take over and he's put on trial uh-huh. And during his sentencing, a bunch of fascists, including this like high up general, are say, this is the guy who kept people from killing me. So he wow. gets a lighter sentence. They were, instead of sentencing him to death, he gets like four years. 
So he's like honored wow. by the fascists. I was like, this is like, uh, this is giving me a migraine. What? I know. I know. I have what? no idea how I feel about any of this. I want. <laughs> Jeez. Um, okay. Uh huh. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So. Anyway, anarchists in government is propagandized heavily by the moderate left and the Stalinists to be like, we've got to do something about these fucking anarchists. And they want to use it to let the the communists take over, basically, because the communists didn't want a social revolution because the Spanish Civil War is so weird. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Almost done breaking okay. your head with this, I think. Okay. S- Stalin is like. We have a delicate balance of power and the time is not right for Spain to have a revolution. So I'm not going to let them do it because he didn't want to alienate France and England in the U.S. by seeming too radical. Um, and so the communists kept trying to convince the anarchists like to accept a, quote, controlled democracy, which was a euphemism for dictatorship, like a leftist dictatorship. Uh-huh. So a lot of people are really happy this revolution, right? There's like seven to eight million people involved in the revolution. Uh, right. And all these people are like suddenly in charge of their own lives. They're overall pretty stoked. And and they're pulling it off like they're fighting a war and having a revolution. But then there's a lot of people who really aren't happy that both of these things are happening at once. Some of them oppose collectivization on principle. Some are afraid that they're going to alienate their allies. And some are just jealous that the anarchists are doing it instead of them, which I think is Stalin's thing. I, I think Stalin was just jealous. I but see. I don't know. So, but what Stalin wants, Stalin gets because he's the only one giving them guns and he has all their gold. Mm. So what happens is huge chunks of the Republic forces who are busy fighting fascists turn their attention away from the war effort to go and fight against the revolution and decollectivize Spain. Oh, (laughs) here's where the story gets dark. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. (laughs) So we're on a roll. We were on a roll for a while there. I know. I think that's how they felt too. <laughs> they were like, holy yeah. shit, we're doing it. You know? Not to channel <laughs> how they may have felt, but okay. Okay. Well, they had a good run and they did. Yeah. They had a really good run. And so there's a telephone exchange in Barcelona and the anarchists run it. And the telephone exchange is like the old timey thing where the, you know, a person's like listening to the phone call and connects you and like, pushes wires around on a big board you know yeah and so it's a very like secure job right because you need to have someone you trust doing it it's a it's a very important position or whatever and the Mm -hmm. communists in the republic don't want the anarchists to be running anymore so in may 1937 they lay siege to the building well they try to just take over and then the anarchists are like fuck you and they like lock the doors and there's a siege okay fighting breaks out all over barcelona in a conflict that called gets called may days and in like a week 500 to 1,000 people are dead um, God, okay. of like literal infighting between um, not actually just the anarchists. I'm going to get to them in a second. Some of the I'll, I'll get to it in a second. And it mostly ended because the anarchist ministers encouraged the anarchists to put down their guns and seek a truce. So the anarchists actually were the ones being like, we can't do this infighting anymore. We need to stop. Okay. Um, Federica Monsani, the woman of the minister of health. She drives around Barcelona and personally is telling people, please stop fighting. I really don't know how I feel about this. And neither did the anarchists, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, um, 
The communists didn't have mixed feelings. What they did is tried to assassinate her on May 6th, 1937. They shot okay. into her car, wounding two of the people in her car. She escaped unharmed. Okay. And at this point, in my mind, basically, it's like they're losing the war because they're losing what they're fighting for, you know? So the socialist prime minister and the anarchists are forced out of government and the communists kind of step in. Uh, some people refer to Negrin, the new prime minister, as a dictator. Other people don't. And they go and they actively dismantle the cooperative setup that had been set up over the past year. And the CNT leadership lets it happen. And it's like, we just got to let this happen because the only thing that matters is keeping the militias fighting at the front lines against fascism. The rank and file are fucking pissed about it. They arrest anarchists. They pillage collective storehouses. They smash up furniture. Even the like governor of Aragon is like, you can't do this. Stop forced decollectivizing. Um, but it wasn't a law and order thing. So they just defy him. You know, authoritarians always are like, oh, we're doing it for law and order. But they, I don't know, they're just fucking breaking the law. Yeah. Yeah. As always, it is the opposite. Yeah. They arrest 600 organizers of collectives. They take the land that had been collectivized and give it back to the landowners who are almost all fascists in that, like, they are on the fascist side of the war. Shocked. Yeah. They even take the animals that the, like, collectives have raised themselves and give them back, quote, to the fascists. And they, some places <sighs> they stole the seed stocks from the collective farms. I mean, it, uh, that's... That's just getting petty. I know. I, my God. <laughs> and so they decollectivize about 30% of the, the collectives in Aragon. And they also are like running around like bandit style robbing food deliveries. And they're only robbing food deliveries from the collectives to sort of make the collectives less efficient. Now I'm going to tell you about the other people who are an anarchist who are on the sort of right side of all of this from my point of view. The POOM. The P-O-U-M. And they're most mm. famous because two Brits... Eric and Eileen Blair, Eric Blair being more famous as George Orwell, the name he wrote under, mm -hmm. are fighting in the Poom at the time that this happens. So the Poom are Marxists and everyone and the Soviets fucking hate him because they're mm -hmm. not Bolsheviks. They get called Trotskyists because everyone who's not a Bolshevik gets called a Trotskyist at this time. They didn't actually follow okay. Trotsky. It's just like a weird pejorative. Yeah, it's like you don't like Stalin, you must be a Trotskyist. Even though like Trotsky, when they formed the Poom, the, the leader who formed the Poom was friends with Lenin and Trotsky. And he was like, mm -hmm. and Trotsky was like, don't, don't, don't do that. And he was like, I'm going to do it anyway. And then they get called fucking Trotskyists. Anyway, <laughs> so, so Orwell is in the Poom and he's off okay. fighting fascists and he gets shot through the fucking neck by fascists. And he wakes up in the hospital during the May Days uh -huh. in Barcelona. And he has to flee the country under a fake name because the Stalinists are trying to get him because he was fighting alongside the Poom. What's the name he uses? Oh, I don't know. I Oh, my God. Oh, I thought that you were like, and no, no, I wish I, I wish George I knew. Orwell. Oh, that wow. would be amazing if that's how he got his. Yeah, no. Okay, well, let's I I rewrite was, history. My that's head how was he... about to explode. Okay. Yeah. All right. But he uses a different. So he has many pseudonyms. Yeah. I mean, he basically is just like, yeah. they're out to get him. And he's like, oh, fuck. And him and his wife flee uh, and they'd actually okay. been spying on him eventually like they uncovered all these documents that like him and especially his wife eileen were being spied upon by the stalinists okay. and he wasn't even a marxist he joined the marxists he actually said that if he had did it over again he would have joined the anarchists but he joined the marxists because he didn't like the state communists and he wanted to throw grenades at fascists so he went and did it you know i mean sure I, a relatable impulse yeah 
So his Good for him. his quote about all of this in his memoir, Homage to Catalonia, except for the small revolutionary groups which exist in all countries, the whole world was determined upon preventing revolution in Spain. In particular, the Communist Party, with Soviet Russia behind it, had thrown its whole weight against the revolution. It was the communist thesis that revolution at this stage would be fatal and that what was to be aimed at in Spain was not workers' control, but bourgeois democracy. It hardly needs pointing out why liberal capitalist opinion took the same line. Well, uh, that's, again, I have no personal framework for that sort of mentality, so <laughs> I guess I'll just have to take his word for it. <laughs> okay, so the, the, one of the founders of the PUM is this guy named Andreo Nin. And mm -hmm. the Soviets disappear him. They just like fucking kidnap him. And then basically they want him to confess to being a fascist so that they can justify all of these attacks. So they torture him to try and get him to say that he's a fascist, but he won't break. So they literally flay him alive and then he dies after they torture him to death. Oh, my God. OK. And graffiti goes up everywhere all over Republican held portions of Spain that say, where is Nin? Mm -hmm. uh, Stalinists also work the economic front against the revolution. They try to undermine collective industry everywhere they go. Like they'll do shit like start a collective and be like, hey, we'll make all the ball bearings and then not make the ball bearings. Like just like <laughs> petty shit. Classic prank. I know. Classic prank. I know. And so then the trams can't move. And so then they can't get the munitions to the front to fight the fascists. And they would refuse or delay any deliveries to any of the anarchist run industry. They would refuse to arm right. the militias until the militias like gave up being militias and joined the regular army. And eventually the militias did. The militias were like, all right, you fucking win. We'll join the regular army because the main thing we care about is defeating fascism. Mm -hmm. And and there's one other group besides the anarchists and the Marxists that I want to point out that the Stalinists betrayed. And that group is the Stalinists. Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> sorry what? i didn't mean to go bastards on this <laughs> well when when you say that you are saying what exactly so okay at one point in madrid the capital it's under siege most of the war uh because uh -huh. the fascists want it and it's not in a good position it's not in the center of strength for the the republic so okay. Actually, I think it wasn't the capital during the time. I think they moved the capital, but I don't remember. So it was saved by the International Brigades at one point, which was led by us. And the International Brigades were unfortunately used kind of as cannon fodder and thrown at the front. Like, But I'll get to that. But mm -hmm. a Soviet general named Manfred Stern was part of saving, led the International Brigades to save the capital. And he was a diehard right. Bolshevik. He had fought in the Russian Revolution. He led spies in the U.S. He gone everywhere and done everything for the USSR, including defend the city of Madrid. And he kept up morale. He got better weapons to troops. And then Stalin got even more fucking paranoid and started purging the Red Army. So while the war is still happening... Stern is recalled back to Russia, whereupon he's not only stripped of his titles, but his fucking name. And he's sent nameless off to the gulag where he dies of exhaustion after more than a decade of suffering. Oh, my God. There... <laughs> OK. D the indignities are infinite in that. Gee, OK. Oh, yeah, I. <laughs> You know, the tricky thing with being on these shows is sometimes you're like, conversation-wise, that's where I would put a joke. 
<laughs> and that's what I've been brought here to do. But sometimes you're just putting a real pickle in and and you do you're that's that's I don't love it. Yeah. That's no good. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's next time we'll have you on one of the more they positive. They shouldn't have ones. done that to him. Yeah. No, no, no. No, I that is um that's extremely uh that's extremely sad. I was it's funny because when we started talking about him, I was like, oh Manfred Stan Stern, another great name. Mm-hmm. Another great and yeah. and I stand by that. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably why they took it from him. Yeah, you know, they were too good of a name. Yeah. And so so I come at Stalin really hard in this because oh my god, fuck Stalin. But I don't want to like deny the bravery of individual communists who are fighting fascism in Spain. Most of the international mm-hmm. brigade were were communists. The anarchists actually told foreign anarchists, stay at home, send us money and guns, but do shit at home. Mm-hmm. Something like one third of the international volunteers died in Spain, which is unfathomably high. Wow. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah. One report I saw claimed that only 7% of the original volunteers returned home unwounded. And it didn't help that the Soviets used them like shock troops and cannon fodder at the... Sure. But... So, by 1939, after three years of fighting, it's all over. Franco takes Spain. Everywhere he conquers, atrocities follow. There's systemic rape and murder done in the name of, quote, cleaning the country. There's some specific bad misogynist stuff that I'm not going to get into, but anyone who wants to can find out about. And I've seen sources that claim anywhere from 120,000 to 400,000 civilians were killed during the, the white terror. Counting is made very hard because Franco was in charge for the next 40 years, and he didn't exactly sure. work very hard to uncover all the evils society perpetuated. So that's actually work right. that's happening now as people are digging up all the bodies, all the mass graves. In the end, the fascists killed more civilians than they killed enemy combatants. And the fascists overall, they're like, like, fuck anyone who targets civilians. But the fascists killed three to ten times more civilians, depending on the sources you look at. Half a million to a million people died in the war, more than half of those civilians. And Franco took power and held it to his death until 1975. Mm -hmm. But here's the weird sort of positive spin I came up with for it. Okay. One, one thing that Good happened. Luck. Yeah, thanks. I, I worked uh. really hard on this. Uh, Franco didn't join the Second World War. And one reason he didn't is that he was in no condition to. His hold on Spain was not strong. His military had just had the fight of their lives. And it's just conjecture on my part, but it feels like if he'd pulled off the coup he'd wanted to, the Axis powers would have had a whole other fucking country on their side. And I don't, uh. I, I actually don't personally guess that would have tipped the scales enough to to have the Axis powers win World War II, but it sure wouldn't have fucking helped. So I'm not sure. saying the anarchists won World War II, but you know. Um. But they didn't <laughs> not. Yeah. And <laughs> if fucking England and France had actually helped Spain or not actively hindered it, then the Republican and the Republic had pulled off a victory, the Allies would have had another country. Mm. Uh, the Spanish exiles, a ton of people fled Spain, right? And they threw down hard in World War II as partisans in France mostly. American volunteers who tried to get back into the fight against fascism got labeled with a pejorative by the government. They were called premature anti-fascists. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to read you a quote okay. about it because there's this this guy Bernard Knox who's a classicist. He's mostly remembered for his like academic achievements about classic works of literature. But okay. during World War II, he was like a paratrooper who worked behind enemy lines in France and Italy coordinating with the partisans. 
And before that, he fought in defense of Madrid and the international brigades. As he describes oh. it, premature anti-fascist was an FBI code word for communist. It was the label affixed to the dossiers of those Americans who fought in the brigades when, after Pearl Harbor, and some of them before, they enlisted in the U.S. Army. It was the signal to assign them to non-combat units or inactive fronts and to deny them the promotions they deserved. Huh. Because the U.S. was like, Hi. well, you, you were against fascists, but, but not when we were against fascists, so fuck you. So it means less when you're doing it. And wow, love, love a little exceptional as rhetoric thrown in as garnish. <laughs> yeah. What a treat. Jeez. Um, oh, God. It's always anytime that there is like a bizarro relabeling like that mm -hmm. done, it always sounds so fucking horrible, too. Yeah. Like you hear that phrase, you're like, what are you talking about? You yeah. Sound, ugh. I, mean, this... I guess like a lot of FBI coding could be described as that just embarrassing sounding i know he has this whole thing in this like essay he wrote about it in the like i think 80s or something he wrote this essay about it, it was like premature anti-fascist like how do you be prematurely anti-fascist that's like being pre prematurely anti-racist you're just always supposed to be against this um <laughs> right like it's a like it's a health risk yeah, sounds totally. like. It sounds I mean, like it was. Dark. They're like, well, you're prematurely anti-fascist. And if you keep doing what you're doing, the problem will worsen. Um, <laughs> You'll be a committed anti-fascist. It's a it's just, Yeah, it sounds like a pediatrician being like, please don't smoke cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so his story, in, in a brief version of his story, anarchist sailors bring him across to Spain his small British contingent showed up as his friend put it. And this is the quote in his, uh, this is actual quote instead of my paraphrasing quote. They were there to quote, set an example of training and discipline and shaving to the anarchist militias. And um, shaving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so perfectly <laughs> British that I love it. And also means that I think he meant it like, you know, like camaraderie, you know, he was like, ha ha ha. We'll go show them, you know, Spanish, Spanish anarchists, how to do the real fight and shave their whiskers. I can't do a British accent. Don't even pretend and like that was one. And I can hear it. I can hear it, though. That's yeah. that's, you know, weird of them. But, um, yeah. you know, not my business. And so he fights in defense of Madrid. And much like Orwell, the other British uh, volunteer who fights in the front, he gets shot through the neck by fascists uh, and survives. Interesting. He's left for dead because they hit an artery and he's just bleeding, arterial bleeding. His companions are like, yeah. we don't have any medical care and we got to go. So they leave him. And then he comes to and then walks over and catches up with them. <laughs> They're all like, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just pictured what that would look like. Know, totally. Like, guys. <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys. Wait up. <laughs> uh so they send him home to England, and by 1939, he's no longer a <laughs> communist because he's like, he just sees all the betrayals coming out of the USSR. And he doesn't become like a something elseist. He's just not a communist anymore, and he's still an anti-fascist. So he he joins the fight for World War II, and he works to coordinate efforts with the partisans. And in Italy, he meets these partisans, and they're like, not sure they're going to trust the US troops. And he shows up, and he's like, oh yeah, I was in Madrid. And they were like, fuck yeah, you're our guy. And they like help him coordinate. and help coordinate the you know, war against Mussolini. So I have one more story about the lingering effects of the Spanish Civil War. And this one was relayed to okay. me in person. And so it is not citable and it is absolutely prone to the wanderings of the oral tradition. So please consider this, dear listeners, 
a I love the oral tradition. A uh, a piece of oral tradition. So there's a place called the Institute for Social History in Amsterdam. It's an archive that I um it's where a lot of the I went there once to go look at anarchist fiction from the Spanish Civil War. And mm-hmm. it was started in 1935 by a Dutch socialist who during World War II spent most of his time getting Jewish kids away from Nazis. And when I was in Amsterdam doing research at the Institute, my host told me this story. My host is not from the Institute. So again, not trying to verify this. A bunch of anarchist librarians and archivists, they're seeing the end of the war coming fast. And so they start loading up train cars with archival materials, just everything from the war, all of the Republic and the revolution, all the newspapers, all the pamphlets, everything that they can find to archive. They're like, we got to get this shit out of here. The fascists are going to destroy it. So they get the fuck out on basically like the last train out of town as the fascists take over. They go up to Amsterdam. They leave it at the ISH, the Institute, I-I-S-H. And a couple years later, right before the Nazi occupation, archivists get most of the ISH's collection over to England because the Nazis are invading there. And they didn't bring it back till the Nazis are gone. So all the Spanish Civil War stuff is up in Amsterdam. And then Franco dies in 1975. And these old crusty Spanish anarchists, they're like, fuck, all of our stuff is up in Amsterdam. So they, they grab rifles and they head on up to Amsterdam and they, they storm the building. And I don't know, I like to imagine them in like little Spanish Civil War hats. You should look up sometime those Spanish Civil War hats, the CNT hats. They're really cute. Okay. And so they, they run in with rifles. Which were antiquated back when they were used 40 years early. You know, they were like... They used their original I rifles? I don't know about that part, but but I liked... I, where else are they getting rifles? I In don't know. In my mind, they did. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine they didn't update the... Yeah. The rig, yeah. And so they show up and they're like, give us our shit back. And then the archivists, because archivists and librarians are the best people in the entire world. They're like, yeah. so... So the thing is, your stuff is safe here and where we can take care of it. But we'll show you how to use the photocopiers and you can make copies of everything. We're not taking it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. And the old anarchist veterans are like, yes, show us how to use the photocopiers. Wait, this is getting me kind of fogged up. This is a really sweet story. <laughs> I know. It makes me really happy. Um, <laughs> and then they, they head off back to Spain with their photocopies of their old newspapers and the originals are still held to this day by badass archivists and you can go see them and research them. That is so awesome. Oh my God. What a beautiful, find- thank you for really saving a little yeah. golden nugget for the end. <laughs> for that sure. is so- I'm going to be thinking about that for weeks and months. That's awesome. For sure. So that's, that's the bird's eye view of the Spanish Civil War as best as I can tell it. <laughs> I learned so much today. I only knew um, truly the most bullet pointy bullet points of the Spanish Civil War. I've learned so much. And I learned who a race car is whose name I've already forgotten. (laughs) Margaret, his name is Lightning McQueen. Now, I was I will say my mind wandered for just a second when we were recording the second episode. And I was like, where is Lightning McQueen politically aligned? And I was kind of struggling. Mm-hmm. And, and then I realized I knew in my heart that some weirdo has written an essay about what the answer actually is. And so I'll send it to you when I find it. I appreciate it. I would it. guess that Lightning McQueen and I would have some gripes. I think I think centrist. I do. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, he's a product of the Disney. Yeah. But that doesn't mean he can't zoom away because he's not a, a real... 
He's a car. There's also no so, room for centrists know. in the Spanish Civil War. I don't know where they were. Not, no, none. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it was a very polarized uh, situation. Yeah. Well, I'll get back to you on Lightning McQueen's politics, but I, okay. I truly learned so, so much. Uh, I have like a million names written down of uh, that I want to go down an infinity rabbit hole about. And the fact that your final story is strictly the oral tradition is even better. I don't, if that story isn't true, I never want to know. Yeah, that's if how I feel too. If there's any factual inaccuracy, <laughs> yeah. I don't care. <laughs> that's how I feel also. <laughs> All of my journalistic instincts, I just flush down the toilet. That story needs to be true. Yeah. Nope. It's a folktale. <laughs> yeah. And if you're listening and you were one of those uh, it's probably too late for you to be one of those Spanish anarchists at this point. Never mind. But I mean, if if you if you can confirm it, reach out. Yeah. If you can disprove it, die with that secret. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, do you have any pluggables for us? Uh, yeah. If you uh want to listen to Ghost Church, that's the new show I have coming out on Cool Zone Media right now, produced by Sophie Lichterman. And edited by Ian Johnson. It's a show about the American spiritualist movement in the U.S. I thought it would be uh, when I sort of embarked on it. I was meeting new spiritualists who are also old spiritualists. I did research on the history. I sort of uh, I'm working on an episode right now that's about Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle falling into Whoa. a decades long feud over whether you can talk to ghosts or not. Um, there's all sorts of wild shit to learn about. Um, I really enjoyed putting it together. And if you're remotely interested in industrial era uh, U.S. weirdness or uh, ghosty shit and supernatural shit in general, you should check it out. I highly Facts. recommend it. Thank you. I'm so glad you're listening. Yeah. Uh, Margaret, do you want to plug, you plug your book? I have a book coming out in September from AK Press. It'll be available for pre-order in June, which is probably when you're listening to this episode, or maybe you're listening to it far into the future. And the book is called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. It comes out from AK Press. I think I already said that part. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy, and you can follow me on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. And that is the end of my pluggables. Sophie, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, that you can uh, follow me at y underscore sophie underscore y on Twitter, and uh, you can <laughs> my my handles have too many underscores. I did not think this through. You can follow <laughs> me on Instagram at sophie underscore ray underscore of underscore sunshine on Instagram. But it is worth it because my dog's really cute. This is true. It is true. Anyways, we'll, we'll be we'll be back Monday with, with with some more hope. Yay! I feel hopeful. Yay! We did it. Mission accomplished. Hooray! Cool people who did cool stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.